Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Tonight's session two, uh, we were introduced to Saul of Tarsus last week. We pick up from there. Saul is a fiery, zealous young man. He leaves Jerusalem for Damascus. It's a walk of about 150 miles along a very well-beaten path. It would have taken him some time, but Paul had no idea the distance he was about to cover and the places that his journey was about to take him. Four words tonight, all alliterated for your convenience, to carry Saul of Tarsus from, watch this, Jerusalem to Damascus, from Damascus to Arabia, from Arabia back to Damascus, from Damascus to Jerusalem, and finally from Jerusalem to Tarsus. Did you get all that? That's what is about, that's all going to happen tonight in our study. You have a map there, uh, slide two if you would, Garrett. You have a map there of the Arabia in the time of St. Paul. We'll come back to this tonight a couple times. From Jerusalem, find Jerusalem there, to Damascus, from Damascus to Arabia, from Arabia back to Damascus, from Damascus to Jerusalem, and finally from Jerusalem to Tarsus. we got a lot of ground to cover tonight. Arabia is the pink shaded area on the map. I don't know if it printed out in good color for you. You can see uh, it's called the Nabatean Kingdom. And then all of that peninsula here, Mecca, the Empty Quarter, Mayin, Aden, all of that is Arabia today. But in Paul's day, when they referred to Arabia, they were talking specifically about uh, the Nabadians who had Petra and Aquaba and over all the way into Mount Sinai. And we'll talk about that tonight. Four words for us tonight. Resolution. Redirection, retreat, and reimagined. And we begin with that first word, resolution. And this is the resolution of Saul as a zealous Pharisee. And I'm going to belabor that point from last week that Paul is a zealous Pharisee when we meet him. This group, again, developed about 150 years in the 150 years before Jesus, during the Maccabean period, they were driven by a religious purity. They were more of a party of the people, more scribes than they were priests. They were not elite. They believed in the resurrection, the importance of studying the Torah. It would be to their credit, as much as Christians like to kind of uh, pile drive the, the Pharisees, to their credit... Judaism largely survived after the Roman destruction of Israel because of the Pharisees. They would go into these synagogues all over Asia Minor and Europe and around the world and essentially rabbinical Judaism, which is what is in place to this day, is a product of the Pharisees post the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel. So... As much as we, you know, oh, look what they did to Jesus. Uh, they, they found some footing in the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem. Because none of those other parties, those four, those four major parties survived. Only the Pharisees did. The Pharisees, the word means pious one. Very conservative. Uh, unyielding. Think of them as the family values party. Let's return the nation back to God. Because if we don't, you know what the Assyrians did to our ancestors. Because they, our ancestors were sinners. 
Well, you know what the Babylonians did to our ancestors because our ancestors were sinners. You know what the, what the Romans could do to us at any time because we're such sinners. And so there is this, uh, they are really preaching a gospel of turn or burn. Uh, we're going to get it uh, if we don't uh, get everybody on board. I mean, we're all right. I mean, we're doing it right. But all these, you see the conflict in the gospels, why they were always so hard on sinners. On, on those on the outside, is they really felt these sinners are going to get us all killed. And they were empowered then to almost by force bring them uh, a right. And Jesus is always on the side there of the poor and the outsider saying, you got the right ideas, guys, but you're doing it wrong. Uh, I'll return to Acts seven fifty one and following, and this is picking up at the martyrdom of Stephen, and I'm going to Read, I didn't print it completely for you there, I don't think. And you don't have it completely here on the wall. But I'm going to read a portion of Acts 7, Acts 8, and Acts 9 to reinforce again who Paul is and the position that he takes. We are picking up at the end of Stephen, the first Christian martyr's last sermon. The last paragraph. He says to his peers, great way to make friends and influence people, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. See how he turns, these are Pharisees and Sadducees, he's turning the tables on them. You, 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 you're talking about defending the ancestors, you're just like them. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Their response. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him outside of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man Named Saul. There's his first appearance. And then into Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved of their killing Stephen. On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And then into Acts 9, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters for the synagogues in Damascus so that, he, that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's the name for early Christianity, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. That is the context for Paul in his late 20s. In Paul's defense, repeating from what I said last week, he is as sincere as he can be. He is a true believer. He thinks he is doing God's will. Paul again, late 20s, 30 years old, and I said this last week, to our 21st century observation, he would appear as a radical cleric, a member of a Taliban group, uh, someone you might see on CNN news or on cable news, foaming hostilities somewhere in some small village. Yet in his heart of hearts, as strange as this sounds, his conscience is clear. He felt he was on God's side. His life and his life experience thus far had informed him so. 
And so I really want you in his boots, or his sandals, as he walks, or rides a horse, toward Damascus. He is a bad man. And you'll see how some of the early Christians first react to him when they hear that he's, that he's had a, a change of life. They don't believe it. Uh, but he sees himself as a soldier with orders to carry out. He has a religious, and we would say even a patriotic cause. And while it sounds paradoxical, he was not doing this mean-spirited because he's not a sadist. He is absolutely convinced that if he doesn't root out these traitorous citizens, his nation will be lost. He sees himself as standing in the gap between pure religion and the judgment of God that is surely to fall if we don't root out these core individuals who are, who are going to bring down everything. Questions? Sure. The question is, how did he decide who to root out? If anyone professes Jesus of Nazareth as their Lord, as the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies, they, they become a target at that point. Uh, at this stage, there is not a distinct movement known as Christianity. It's going to be years still before they're even called Christians. Another more than a decade. So, Early Christianity is a distinctively Jewish movement within first century Judaism of the day. And it would begin almost as a family conflict. These Jewish folks have different ideas about how to live out the Jewish faith. That's why it is so personal to the Apostle Paul. Or who would become the Apostle Paul? Saul of Tarsus. He sees it as heresy from within. And as we all know, that's, that's the worst form. If you, have a, if you have an enemy on the outside, it unifies a group of people. We scapegoat that enemy and we can all come together, regardless of our differences, and say the biggest problem is, is that enemy over there. But when the enemy is within, or is perceived to be within, then it becomes a much more dangerous affair. Good question. Other questions? We'll move to that second word then, and I've chosen the word redirection. As in, Saul of Tarsus has his life redirected in the most mystical of mystical experiences. I chose the word redirection intentionally because Paul isn't really converted, though we speak of it that, speak of it that way. Even said on Facebook tonight that Paul really wasn't converted. And I've already heard from a couple of folks, what are you talking about? Uh, I'll use that term, conversion. I'll use it interchangeably just like we all do. It's, 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 an, it's a good handle on the suitcase of what we're talking about. But Paul, Saul, did not convert on the Damascus Road from Judaism to Christianity. There is no systematic Christianity at this point. And it would not exist again for another more than a decade. Paul's conversion instead is one of seeing Jesus as the messianic fulfillment of everything he had already understood as a Jew. So his redirection, his conversion, is not, now you better leave that religion and join this one. Rather, it is, you need to rethink all that you know, and you know it so well, but instead of looking at it out this door, look at out this door instead. And you'll see that that change of perspective changes everything. So it's not that kind of, you know, I was lost in my sins and Jesus found me. Paul is in his practice 
a righteous man under the law. He says that repeatedly in the New Testament. So he, it's not that kind of repentance. By the way, repentance is often a terrible translation in the New Testament. It means change your mind. Not necessarily, you know, walk an aisle and say a sinner's prayer. Change your mind about how you have been looking at things. And that's what Paul has here. It's, and I'm going to come back to this too. It's as if Paul has in his possession all of the ingredients for this recipe known as Judaism. And he's been taught to put the ingredients together this way. And Jesus is saying, you've got all the right ingredients, but this is going to be a whole different kind of cake. And we're going to mix up the amount of those ingredients and the temperature and the time. We're, we're going to use all that same stuff, but it's going to be put together a completely different way with a different understanding. So Paul's redirection is given to us three different times in the New Testament, all three times in the book of Acts. Once by Luke as the narrator, in the, and that's in, in chapter 9. And uh, I, do, you, do you have part of that there? No? Okay. I'm going to read it to you. And um, we have it here in three, three places. Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. I'm not going to read all three accounts. I am going to read the Acts 9 account. Because this is the one we are most familiar with. As Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Notice the deep personalization that takes place right there. And Saul, God love him. Who are you? And when he says Lord here, it is not who are you God? Who are you sir? The response, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a, a disciple named Ananias. That's all we know about this guy. Ananias is a believer in the way, follower of Jesus, an early convert. Maybe he had been in Jerusalem for the crucifixion. Maybe he had been in Jerusalem for Pentecost. The first Pentecost right after Jesus was resurrected. We don't know where he comes from, but there he is. He's at home, and God comes to call him. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Everything's going along splendidly till now. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And now he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Now that's a good prayer. When you can argue with God a little bit. And Ananias is certainly doing that here. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go! Exclamation point. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house, entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, and this, I already mentioned it before we started tonight. This is the most precious thing in this story. The man who argues with God and says, I ain't doing it. He walks in, puts his hands on Paul. And what's the first word he says to him? Brother Saul. So, the combination of the vision and the long walk to Straight Street has got Ananias straight. I'm going to treat this man like he's my brother. 
Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Paul, Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. That is the conversion that we have of Saul of Tarsus. It is not the rule. I've never met anyone in my life who is a Christian who said, you ever read that story about Saul? That's what happened to me. Never. It is the exception, not the rule. Paul gives his own account 25 years later to a group of his angry countrymen in Jerusalem in Acts 22. And when he is testifying before Agrippa in Caesarea in Acts 26, he tells the story again. The three tellings are more or less consistent. Some little details do change account to account. Uh, particularly with the third telling where Paul expands on his zealotry and what he had done in his previous life. And he expands on the conversation that he and Jesus had on the road to Damascus that Luke does not give us here in this passage. But consistently, it is the Damascus road. It is a blinding light. It is an encounter with the risen Christ, and it is life-altering. Now, remember what I said last week and was in our, our, one of our questions tonight. Paul is a theologian, but more than a theologian, he is what? He's a mystic. Now, what you've read right there is a mystical experience. Um, and by mystical and, this, and mysticism has been a tradition of all faiths, Christianity, Judaism. But by mysticism, it is this intentional desire. Uh, Mer, Mer, Thomas Merton said it like this, that I have but one will in my life, and that is to withdraw to solitude that I might disappear into the face of God. Wow, that's a statement. Mysticism is this desire for union with God. And that is what Paul was seeking, even as he's on his way to Damascus. This is, is N.T. Wright's hypothesis, and I give it a lot of credence because Wright is so schooled in Jewish history and the Judaism of the Second Temple. And, and he says this, that Paul was meditating, he believes, and, and this was to be deeply immersed in this practice was common in first century Judaism for, for a cleric or for a rabbi, for a Pharisee. And the focus in the first century, and I'd never tied this together until Wright said this, the focus in the first century for so many of the Jewish leaders was Ezekiel chapter 1. Uh, I've got a, a slide for you of Ezekiel chapter 1, an artist rendering. Now, I'm not asking you to have a mystical experience, but I want you to stare at this picture while I read a portion of Ezekiel 1. Ezekiel speaking. I looked and I saw a windstorm out of the north. An immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures it was bright and lightning flashed out of it the creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning as i looked at the living creatures i saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its own four faces each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel when the creatures moved i heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing waters like the voice of the almighty like the tumult of an army then there was a voice from above over their heads and high above on a throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from that appeared 
to be, I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. Ezekiel's experience for those in the zealous prophetic tradition is the pattern after which they seek. I don't think Ezekiel is on psychotropic mushrooms at this point. But he is having a moment that he struggles. I mean, some of that is beautiful and some of it makes no sense whatsoever. What is a wheel within a wheel? What is, what is a creature with four living faces? Uh, so in the first century, the Jewish mysticism of the day, they would meditate and envision in their mind this whirling combination of beings and rainbows and fire and thunder and lightning and glory. And then they would allow their mind's eye to travel up to the throne room and travel up that fiery being, hoping that when they got to the top in the midst of their prayers, they might see the face of God. And so, returning to N.T. Wright, he believes Paul is carrying out this exact exercise, which is documented all about uh, first century Judaism. And as his mind's eye rises to the throne of God, when he gets to the top of it, it is Jesus of Nazareth whom he sees. And he speaks. And Paul's experience of collapse on the Damascus Road is the exact experience that Ezekiel has in Ezekiel chapter 1. So there is, even at his conversion, his redirection, there is this new sense of a prophet being born in the tradition of the Jewish prophets, in the tradition of Ezekiel. That's a lot to take in. Now, Catholics and Pentecostals, they read this story and they say, oh yeah, that's great. Because Catholics have the mystics, Pentecostals have all kinds of hallelujah power. We who are more Baptist, Presbyterian, Reformed, Methodist, we read this. And if somebody says, let me tell you about the experience I had. We're like, they might need to see a physician. That is sort of our default position. Because we have been formed in such a way as to not trust our experience. Just trust the Bible. Well, this is in the Bible. Well, it doesn't happen like that anymore. It doesn't? They could have told Paul that. Paul was seeking this to happen because it had never really happened to anybody before. Then it happens to him in this con conversion moment. I'm not talking to, saying that you should go out and have a religious experience. I don't know. But Paul had one. And it is in the tradition of the Judaism he knew. And at the same time, it was extraordinary and inexplicable. And the only reference point we have back to anything similar to that is this passage from Ezekiel. Questions? I, I think, you know, I, I, I think when he, the question again is, is he all in? At what point is, is Saul of Tarsus all in? Uh, Certainly when his eyes are opened, he, he starts preaching immediately. Uh, like someone who has been in strangely awakened from the craziest dream and they have to tell you about it. Right now, before I forget. That's the sense that you have of it. Uh, but I don't know before Ananias arrives and puts some pieces together if he had any idea what had really happened. Uh, and we'll talk about how he put some of those pieces together in our next couple of words. Uh, I, I, I just don't think we have dealt fairly with this conversion story. Every sermon I've ever heard about the conversion story of Paul, Saul of Tarsus, is that, oh, he met Jesus, hallelujah, he got baptized and he started. And there was no, like, that's it. But the, <laughs> read that story. Read it in light of Ezekiel chapter. Uh, read it in light of Isaiah 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in his temple. 
and the burning coals that are put on, on his lips, he has a very similar experience. And it's no accident then that this is, Paul experience, is Paul's experience, and it's no accident that Luke includes it the way he does as a direct link to the prophetic tradition of the Jewish people. You, you, you won't understand the rest of Paul's story without his fierce zealotry as a Pharisee. And you won't understand the rest of his story without getting a grasp of what happened on the Damascus Road. Those two are inseparable and continue to make him who he is. Third word tonight, retreat. Oh, I just love this part. Uh, One great thing about going to do an in-depth study each year like this is I get to go back and pull all those old books off the shelf that if I gotten dust on them that either I had in my own theological training or 30 years of preaching sermons and go back and remember again what I used to know that I have forgotten about all of this stuff. And this is one of my favorites. Paul retreats after his conversion. To your question, did he get it right away? A lot of it. But he has to step back and sort of say, now what? I mean, if, you, if you've got your ladder up against a wall, and you get to the top of that ladder and then realize it's propped up against the wrong wall, you've got to come all the way down and then move that thing to get in the right. That's what, that's what Paul has to do. Okay, I've got the right ladder, but I've been climbing in the wrong direction. So how does this all go together? So, this is, this is that circular route we're going to follow right here. Uh, the journey takes Paul, Jerusalem to Damascus, Damascus to Arabia, Arabia back to Damascus, Damascus to Jerusalem, and finally from Jerusalem to Tarsus in the space of three years. And it happened so quick in the New Testament that we don't always see it. So you've got the chart. I'm going to give this uh, in narrative uh, form and tell you the story of it. And you can check my story against the New Testament because you have all the references here. So, Paul's redirection, his conversion occurs about 33 AD. Immediately upon regaining his sight from that event, he goes to preaching in Damascus like one of those wheels burning inside a wheel. And that carries us through Acts 9, verse 22. And there, actually, at the first half of Acts 9, 23, we get this statement, after many days had gone by. That's Acts 9, 23. How many days? We go to Galatians 1, 17, and Paul tells us this. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles. Before I was, I went into Arabia. So let's go back to the map real quick. Paul is at Damascus. He has that redirection, converting experience. You all see Damascus there, just north of Bostra. And you can see the Nabadian kingdom, the pink area, that is what is known as Arabia of the time. Uh, it stretches south there of the Dead Sea and over into the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, these are the people, the Nabadians, by the way, who built the city of Petra. I think I gave you a picture of the treasury building there that's now in the country of Jordan. And their influence extended all the way over almost to Egypt into the Sinai region. Hmm. What is in the Sinai desert? Come on, Bible student. Anybody know? Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. What happened on Mount Sinai? The Ten Commandments are issued to Moses on Mount Sinai. What else? There's another leading character in the Old Testament who went to Mount Sinai to hear the voice of God. Elijah. And while he was at Mount Sinai, the storm came. God wasn't in the storm. 
earthquake, God's not in the earthquake, and then the sound of that still, small voice. So, I believe this, and a lot of scholars believe this, that when Paul retreats to Arabia, he's going into the Sinai Desert, the desert from which the Jewish ancestors came out of when they were rescued from Egypt, and he goes to Mount Sinai where both the law of God was given and that primal prophet Elijah had his encounter with God. As a complete aside, and I don't think in 33, 34, 36 AD that Paul knew about what happened with Jesus on his own Mount of Transfiguration. I'm leaping here. My mind is racing with this one. On the Mount of Transfiguration, just before Jesus made his final journey into Jerusalem, he takes three disciples to the top of that mountain, and lo and behold, who appears with Jesus on that mountain? Moses and Elijah. The lawgiver and the prophet who had been in God's presence on Mount Sinai. So, I think, I'm not alone in this, I didn't come up with this by myself, I think when Paul says he's going to Arabia, that he is going into that Sinai desert. He is going back to the very roots of everything he has ever learned and ever been taught. And he is recreating in a way that desire as Moses and as Elijah had for God to speak to him again to clarify. Now what? And so that happens. We can go back to the timeline if you don't care. That happens right there, Acts 9, 23a, and Galatians 1, 17. So with travels and time away equaling three or so years, then Paul returns uh, in 36 or so. He returns from the desert to Damascus, and we pick up the story again right there in Acts chapter 9, 23b. This is just great. One verse in Acts chapter 9 Three years are packed inside of that one verse. Now we read it because we, we read narratively. And we often read the Bible like if I just pick it up Genesis 1-1, it's all going to be in order. No. Even sometimes when it's in order, you don't get a sense of the amount of time that is passing. So we don't have that sense in Acts chapter 9. Three years pass in Acts chapter 9 verse number 23. So Paul comes back to Damascus and here is the second half of that verse. And then also, we'll pick up in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says this, In Damascus, the governor under King Aratos had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hand. This is told in two places in the New Testament. To the slide with Aratus. So the bottom picture is the treasury building in Petra. I wonder if Paul stopped there along the way, on his way to Sinai, because it was in place. It was built 200 years before Paul. And uh, the Nabadians were actually still inhabiting Petra at that time. So I wonder, just a little speculation on his way to Mount Sinai. And I love this top inscription. It's a funeral inscription discovered in 1889, it refers to King Arterus of the Nabataean kingdom who ruled from 9 B.C. to 40 A.D. and who, ha- who held, not help, who held jurisdiction over Damascus. That's all on that inscription right there. Arterus was also, by the way, the father-in-law of Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod. It's all incestuous. It's all incestuous. The royalty there. But the great thing is this discovery is not made to 1889. So we know Arterus lived to at least 40 A.D., So it tightens up our timeline considerably. The conversion of Paul, the travels of Paul, before going back to Jerusalem for the first time, have to be by 39 A.D., before 40 A.D., because Arterus no longer is the king over that region of the Nabataean kingdom at that point. Um, Over the wall, Paul goes, escaping Damascus, and now it is time to, to return to Jerusalem for the first time in three years. This is, this is something we don't see in the reading because we read it and think it's just all happening so quick together. Paul leaves Jerusalem for Damascus, has that converting experience, doesn't get back to Jerusalem for three years. 
He comes back to Jerusalem. He left the zealous Pharisee. He returns as an, as, as an aspiring follower of Jesus. The apostles are terrified of the man. They, they won't touch him with a 10-foot pole and a hazmat suit. Uh, but Barnabas, and we'll talk about him more next week, paves the way. At least with Peter and James. Peter and jo- James meet him. And he spends two weeks with them. None of the other apostles seem to have one. We are not getting in the same room with him. We're not ready uh, for that. This is the apostles' version of what happens in Acts chapter. I want you to hear the differences, okay? I'm going to give you the apostles' version of what happens next. And then I'm going to give you Paul's version of what happens next and see if these two can fit together. Acts chapter 9. So Saul stayed with them and moved freely about in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He's got his mojo now. He's been away three years. He's got it now. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. Everybody tries to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea. Down is not south. It's down to the seashore from Jerusalem. They took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. You got to go home. You know, you ain't got to go home, but you can't stay here is what they're telling him. You've got to leave. You're, you're too hot to handle. That's their version. And now here is Paul's version from Acts 22. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance. Here he is again. And I saw the Lord speaking to me. This is what Jesus says to him. Quick, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. But the Lord said to him, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So one version says, Paul's about to get himself killed and the, and the apostles intervene. Paul's story is, you can't fire me, I quit. Uh, because Jesus had already come to him and said, you got to go. Now, which is true? They're both true. Certainly, this is Paul's experience in the temple. And the apostles, the believers, certainly recognize that if we don't get him out of Jerusalem, he's going to get killed. And so they put him on a boat, send him back to Tarsus. Here's another massive parenthesis in the scriptures that we don't see. Paul is gone from the Holy Land for 10 years. It's 36 AD. He will not set foot back into Antioch or Damascus or Jerusalem again. He won't come back to Jerusalem for more than a dozen years. But he won't even come back to that region for 10 years. And that's our fourth word, reimagine. Yes. Uh, he would have studied with Gamil before his conversion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Gamil is not a Christian. He is not a Christian. He, he dies 50 A.D. Uh, as a devout uh, Jewish teacher. So the training of Gamil occurs in that time period when Paul first comes to Jerusalem as a young man, 20, 21 years old. Over the course of that seven, eight, ten years before he is converted. Good question. So Paul is sent off to Tarsus by the apostles, by Jesus. No one in the early church at this point. By this point, the church is not, you know, ten years old. It's a new movement. No one had ever dealt with someone like him. You've got to go chill out. And by all appearances, that's what he did for 10 years. And so we might ask, we're speculating a little now, but what does Paul do for 10 years? Back home, living with his parents. He makes tents. Uh, he's reconstructing his life, his faith. He's going back to the Torah that he knew so well. 
He's going back to those 613 commandments of Yahweh, going back to the Psalms, rereading them, back to the book of the 12, back to the major prophets. He's meditating, meditating and praying and seeking again that mystical contact, except now it is with Jesus the Christ as the fulfillment of everything he had already previously known. And he begins to understand, because when he arrives on the scene, Ten years later and starts preaching, his preaching is different. When he arrives on the scenes ten years later, he understands that Jesus is the glory of God and that we are the temples. The temple in one place is no longer required. God is building this new humanity on and on it goes. And Paul could not have come to these kind of conclusions quickly or without reflection. So I think he's making tents. He's talking to the customers. He's working this out with Jews in the city of Tarsus, with Stoics, with Epicureans, with students over at the Greek universities, old Pharisees that he meets with on the Sabbath day, maybe a correspondence or two or three or a hundred with his friend Barnabas. It's a different kind of desert. He is alone, essentially, with Christ, doing that inner work of the soul. And I believe that everything that follows... Everything else that he would ever write, everything else he would ever say, every travel, every suffering that he would be subjected to follows out of this time where he just is forced to work it out. Those of you that are in the recovery movement or AA, you, you, might, rec you might recognize that this pattern right here, that there is that time as you're moving toward health even of, you know, you can't be with those same old friends. You can't go to those same old places. And there is this forced sense of solitude. And that seems to be uh, what he's doing here. Were you about to ask a question, Doug? We picked that up and we'll, we'll, we'll pick that up next week with the Galatians passage. But we, uh, excuse me, with the third session. But it's, it's mainly in that Galatians account of Paul's testimony. He uses the term 14, almost 14 years. We already are pulling the three years out. Uh, and it's 14 years from his conversion to the time he ever goes back to Jerusalem. Uh, the second visit uh, to Jerusalem. And guess what? They arrested him then tried to kill him again. Uh, they're good at that uh, with, with Paul. Here's a, I couldn't get the, uh, I'll come back to this one, but I couldn't get the watermark off of this slide. But I love this. And I think this is what's going on with Paul. Do you mind if I join you? Take a minute, you'll see it. I love that little cartoon. And so, everything is in pieces. And he is going to put it all back together again. Back one slide, if you would, Garrett. So, when you talk about stages of faith, whether you're paying attention to this about your own life, you're doing this. I hope. Or will do this in your own faith experience. Faith begins with some kind of conversion. You become a believer. Maybe as a young child. Maybe as an adult. After you're converted. You commit yourself. You start reading a lot of books. You start studying. You start attending Bible studies. It's interesting. You're curious. You're growing. Third stage. Command. You start leading sometimes some of those things. You gain enough knowledge that you can become the teacher. That you can become the instructor. That you can help others convert and be committed. But inevitably, if you stay Christian long enough, or any faith for that matter, you're going to come to stage four, which is the crisis or the collapse. Anyone with a deep, lifelong, extensive faith, that faith has died and been reborn Maybe multiple times over the course of their lifetime. If you've never had a crisis of faith. I don't know what to say to that. I truly don't. Uh, I think, and Paul doesn't look like he is falling apart. He's ambitious. He's, he's full of fire. But what happens in those ten years in Tarsus is still a crisis. It's a collapse of the former world that he knew, but hopefully 
we all can, as Paul did, coalesce. We're, now I can, okay, I'm going to pick up all those pieces that have shattered, uh, that have fallen off of me, that I don't know what to do with, and I'm going to start putting it back together again. That's what Paul is doing. Last slide with the three pictures. Here's you three pictures of how this worked. Legos. Legos, first of all, are a creation of the devil. Because if you've ever stepped on one in the middle of the night, you talk like the devil. Uh, Legos can be put together a million different ways. And I can remember my own boys, they'd spend hours building some extravagant thing. And they'd go, oh dad, look at this. And then, and they would, they drop it a gazillion pieces. Then there's weeping and crying and wailing. What does that kid do the next day? They make another one. Same pieces. But they'll never put it back together the same way. It's an opportunity to use those same pieces and to reconstruct it. I've already mentioned recipes. If you've got eggs and flour, milk, some sugar, a few other things, you can make a whole lot of different things. How are you going to combine those ingredients? How are you going to heat those different ingredients? The outcome will be different. And then my personal favorite is music. There are a finite number of notes that can be played. There is an infinite way of putting all those notes together. And so when faith doesn't work anymore, if we can find the grace to persist in that, inevitably, we can begin to start putting it back together differently. And that's where we leave Paul tonight. In Tarsus, he's now early, mid-30s, different place than a young, zealous 25-year-old. He's had a little life experience, and he's putting the pieces together and his journey, in many ways, is just beginning. And then next week, we will pick up that journey, the Barnabas connection, the first missionary journey. Barnabas comes to his rescue once again and brings him back into the fold. And, and how does he ever? Paul then, in the book of Acts, and everything that follows, takes center stage in the story of early Christianity.